0: Hello and welcome to Avanard's Commerce How Experience Drives Purchasing podcast. My name is Sandy Abrahams and I lead the managed services business in Avenard, Australia. I've also spent time working in the retail sector and am absolutely fascinated by this topic. With me I have John Menard, Commerce Solutions Specialist in Greater Asia for Sitecore.
1: Thanks for having me Sandy. Oh
0: you're welcome. And Louis Nonnis, responsible for Digital Customer Experience in Avonard Australia.
1: Pleasure to be here
2: Sandy.
0: Good to have you. Just before we kick off on the serious topic of this podcast, I'd just like to explore with you what actually are your commerce uh, habits at the moment. I'm going to go first really, really quickly and tell you that I have my favourite clothes store that I like to buy um, and shop from. And I have a son who also has worked out at 14 the wonders of online shopping and he does know my PayPal password, (laughs) so it gets a bit dangerous sometimes. What about you, John?
1: Uh, In my house I have a a wife and three daughters, Uh, we buy a lot of groceries, I'm reliably informed that we buy a lot of fashion uh, as well um, from a number of different retailers, and my wife's a kindergarten teacher so she actually buys a lot of uh, books uh, for her kinder from uh, online sources. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same. Uh, wife and a ten-year-old
2: son. Wife loves actually local labels like Iconic to buy her clothes from. Free delivery, which mm-hmm. is a big upside. Um, so if we, if we are forever getting deliveries to our house every single day. There is the mailman with the delivery. My son has also discovered the wonders of online purchases and realised how limited we are in our uh, department stores here in Australia. And I, unfortunately, a bit of a sucker for Instagram and some of the ads that come up on Instagram and I just instantly buy them.
0: My gosh, I've never <laughs> heard anyone who's bought off Instagram. Well, you I are have. the first. Tick <laughs> that <Yes, laughs> That's right, <laughs> tick that one. So John, tell me, what is a commerce solution specialist?
1: <laughs> I do get that question mostly from my family. So I'm not an e-commerce specialist. I am the business head of, inside uh, Sitecore for Greater Asia. So essentially, everything around commerce from a retail, business to business, how is there an ROI in our, in our system, why would people put a commerce play, inject that into their tech stack. So that's all under my brief.
0: Right. Excellent. And uh, Louis, in your role leading uh, digital customer experience for Avanade Australia, what do you do? What does that mean? Yeah.
2: I'm still figuring it out myself, but uh, digital uh, customer experience is really talking and engaging our clients and see how they're engaging their customers. So it's an external view of our clients to their clients, and that's all about the customer experience. What sort of experience are they having with their particular businesses? And creating strategies to improve that experience, because it's the number one topic now across a lot of organisations, is actually engaging their customers in a more... Um, can i say progressive manner
0: thank you so in 2017 retail e-commerce sales worldwide amounted to over 2.3 trillion US dollars and the e-retail revenues are projected to grow to over 4.8 trillion in 2021 and australia is in the top 10 countries for the highest spenders and a local report from NAB also reported that Australians spent a total of $1.9 billion per month on online shopping alone in 2017. So that's a hell of a lot of money and there's a hell of a lot of growth in all of this. But there's something in this that really intrigued me and that is the e-commerce versus commerce and you called that out (laughs) in your title uh, john so i just want to explore what is the difference between e-commerce and commerce
1: oh look i think i think what it amounts to if we're talking in today's terms we would have started talking about e-commerce perhaps 10 years ago where the e-commerce division of a, a retailer would have been two blokes in the corner of the office who were beavering away on their laptops Now, the expectation of the consumer is that it's seamless between your online or your digital play and your in-store bricks and mortar. There's no difference. So as as I pointed out, my job title doesn't have e-commerce, it's commerce. Because the days of being able to separate them uh, are gone. It's one seamless brand experience. Uh, to Louis's uh, role, it's the customer experience, they don't actually care where they're interacting with you. So again, thinking about those numbers, if there's 1.95 billion per month in online shopping as reported by NAB, then I would put to you that the digital uh, processes of those retailers contributes more in store. So there's 1.95 attributed to, to buying it online, but they're also influencing the in-store purchase, or the loyalty programs, or the acquisition play. So it's that's why it's not e-commerce; it's commerce. Commerce now expectations have moved.
0: Yeah. Okay. So they're coming together basically. Yeah. 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 So Louis, I mentioned some big numbers there. Uh, how do you judge the success of commerce
2: in Australia? Yeah. Globally, it's an interesting question. So in Australia, we have typically been very slow in adopting tech and that's fundamentally due to our heritage mining companies, resource companies, but we've now I think one of the key areas that's changing all of this is through our dispersed geography we're having a digital first sort of lens towards buying things. People that live out in the outback, people who live in rural areas, they don't have the opportunity to actually go into department stores. Uh, We now have the option of buying all of our items online globally so uh, my son, for example, is really into the NBA. I can't find his particular NBA player that he likes here in Australia. I have to go onto the website in the US and within two weeks it's delivered at home. So I think it's a, it's a digital first, commerce first thinking now and I think it just suits the Australian way of life.
0: So talking about judging success, what are some of the key factors uh, in Australia for achieving success with commerce
1: Oh, okay, so so let's think about from a let's use a retailer as an example. What's the best experience you have of going to a bricks and mortar store? And if we're going to use our children as examples, my uh, daughter is uh, seventeen, and yes, I'm frightened about that. But <laughs> she's buying a lot of cosmetics, which means I find myself standing in uh, cosmetic stores with her, which is a whole other issue. But What is the best experience? She walks in, they recognise her, they say, Charlotte, great to see you. They take her to the things they know she's bought before, they know she's experienced. She's done a lot of research online already. So the best uh, experience for commerce now is that it's a seamless experience. Whether she's bought online or going in store or she's bought online and she's returning it in store, the, the best retailers, in my opinion, in Australia, have worked out that seamless process. Um, and it tends to be those retailers that started their business, say, after 2002, 2005, somewhere in that region. So they've been always been a digital company, not been a, uh, a legacy company that's adopted digital practice. So that's so, what we're seeing.
0: Okay, so for the companies that uh, started before two thousand and two or two thousand and five, how do they cope in this brave new world? Uh,
1: well, there are examples of those doing well, um, but there are examples of those who are stuck with more legacy systems that they've they've added digital capability to. Some are now uh, to to Louis's point about us being relatively slow adopters. Um, that's true. We we've had. Uh, big box retailers who just rely on their geographical uh, footprint and then were slow to adopt an e-commerce play be- and held back by both board level, by intransigence, by this is how we've always done it, digital's accelerating. What we're finding now is even those guys are having to work to catch up, to catch up with their consumer. The, the digital native consumer is now in charge and so those retailers are having to catch up and work harder to keep up. And remembering the digital native is still moving and still accelerating. Mm. You know, 10 years ago, what was Twitter? What was Instagram? They didn't exist. Five years ago, they weren't important. You know, did we do user-generated content? No. So the, the, the pace at which things are moving and the consumer is moving and moving and moving, the retailer has to work harder to both keep up, try and get ahead and anticipate the next trend. Hmm. So that's why there's a distinction between the uh, legacy firms and the more digital-savvy native firms. And yeah. if I
2: could add to that, um, absolutely agree with John's comments, uh, but even if we look at the old traditional uh, department or retail organisations that we've got in Australia, they're our main target. They are calling us almost in a state of panic because they realise that their old systems, their old way of doing things is archaic, and they've got all these digital providers coming in like Amazon's Impact into Australia, Alibaba potentially coming in. So they're the ones that are engaging consulting firms like ours to really help them through this mire and uh, and pardon the pun. Mm. And we are there to help them.
0: Mm. Mm. So just extending from that a little bit, Louis, I'm quite interested to understand as the digital customer experience lead in how do you take uh, one of those pre-2002, 2005 clients on a journey because it doesn't just automatically happen that they know how to provide that seamless experience that John was talking about? How do we go about helping a client solve that problem? Yeah,
2: so it's a very good question and you can do it many different ways, but typically those old department stores, retail outlets, they would have a lot of disparate data they've probably got loyalty programs got all sorts of programs in place where they've got information about their customers but aren't using it in a very effective manner so first and foremost we need to have some sort of advisory sort of capability that would walk in there and advise them and the best way to structure their their data so they can make sense out of that data then they'll probably need to do some sort of assessment around what are their current um, personas in terms of people that are shopping with them what's the future aspiration of that particular organisation who are going to be the new shoppers and then it's a matter of consolidating that data to see whether that matches what they want to be today and in the future and where that doesn't match then implement the right i call it the martech or the marketing technology stack that's going to give them the ability from a technology perspective to reach out to the existing plus new audiences
0: i will maybe come back to the topic about the back-end systems uh, a little bit later in this podcast. Um, But let's just jump a little bit to Australia versus (laughs) the rest of the world. So are we different? Are we the same? (laughs) Do the trends apply to us?
1: (laughs) Uh, I I warn you now, this is one of my favourite hobby horses. So how most people frame that question is are we following, are we behind the US? Are we five years behind uh, the UK? Uh, No, uh, we're not either of those countries. We have, as Louis pointed out, a disparate geographical spread of our population. Did did we think that Amazon was going to arrive in Australia and have the massive impact that that it has in the US? No. Think more like Canada, where when the Amazon went to Canada, which has got our kind of population in a disparate area, we're not following the same trends. We're on our own path now. We're learning from things that have happened in the US and happened in the UK. A reasonable example, there's a push towards not having a centralised distribution centre, removing your warehouse. If a retailer's got lots of stores, think of those stores as warehouses with a showroom attached. We're following that, and that really works within our geography. But we're not slavishly following a path blazed for us by our forebears in the UK, nor uh, the brash American path. We're on a different stream, so I think that we need to recognise that, that we take some learnings, but we don't slavishly follow. And equally, you know, you you, you notice companies like uh, Afterpay, which have started in Australia, are now pushing into those markets, so they're taking that that payment type or methodology into those markets. So. Commerce and digital commerce actually breaks down those borders entirely, but we've got to stay in the context of our own environment. Not that I'm passionate about it, but yes.
0: (laughs) No, it shows. It shows. That's right. And companies
2: like Afterpay are one of our biggest growing success stories in Australia. They've just signed a big deal in the US and now targeting Europe. So it's a fantastic story.
0: So some of the clients that uh, come to you with problems, concerns, issues that they need solving. Um, Give us some examples of the types of things people ask you for help with.
1: So uh, let me go back a step to what Louis said, where the data play is important. So really from Sitecore's perspective, that is the crux of the matter, getting a singular view of your customer, both from explicit data like previous purchase history or they've filled in a form or they've registered on your site, but also uh, behavioural data. When they came to your site or when they came to your store, what clues did they give you about what their behaviour says? Uh, my behaviour in a cosmetic store is to stand rigid and wait for my daughter to choose chosen what she wants, but her behaviour is to view palettes of um eyeshadow and stuff and to view other things. That, that gives a buying hint. So that's how we start those discussions. What is your customer doing? What are they telling you by their behaviour? And how can you how can you derive that from your data set that you currently have? To paraphrase uh, what Louis said earlier, and how can we use that to get our personas developed and make it more personal, not uh, not smaller batch and blast. We're moving from a broadcast environment to a narrowcast environment where I'm trying to address a smaller group of people, if not an individual.
0: Mm. So I get that on a website. You can you know, follow the clicks and where do you go down, where yeah. you don't. Uh, but I go back to the cosmetic store example <laughs> and you mentioned about the seamlessness of the experience and walking into the store and being recognised. Sure. And then you mentioned, you know, your attitude of sort of standing there with your arms crossed. That's how I pictured it anyway. Yes. Um, How real is that in-store recognition of behaviour today?
1: I worked in retail, right? I worked in retail for a long time, and and it was the 80s, back in the dark ages. (laughs) And I was taught by who I thought at the time were old blokes. They're probably in their 30s and 40s for all I remember. But it was how to serve a customer, to recognise the the hints that they're giving you. I worked in a hardware store. The man walks in with grease on his fingers and a tap part in his hand. You don't take him to China and Glass. It's likely he wants plumbing. So people give you visual cues and you're taught. We react to that as humans. So online, we can react to that. We see someone's coming onto our site and just browsing the things that are on special. Or they come to uh, one of our department stores, and I look at only men's clothing. The likelihood is or I'm looking at men's suits or I'm looking at you know, uh, spring racing carnival things. They're, they're getting some visual clues about what's going on. I put things in the cart and then I abandon cart. I might have gone in store and bought them anyway. So going back to our data set, that's the seamless experience. If I've looked at it online... Or if I'm a loyal customer, now this is the real crux of the matter, if I'm a loyal customer and they know who I am, I've looked at it on my mobile and most people look at stuff on their mobile and I go in store, they can. there is technology available that says you know what I've looked at, now you know I've walked into store. So going back to my daughter, she has the app of that particular firm when she walks in, it probably triggers a marketing beacon somewhere and they know that a high-value customer, is in the store. So there's, there's... And that's probably why they know her name. Um, so that, that's what I mean by a seamless experience. Yeah. And I that was, exists. I was
0: wondering whether you were going to go down the path of actually having video cameras that were recording a facial image of there you and your daughter and matching it to her yeah. file. That was the spooky bit. I think they bit. probably
1: match her as the buyer and me as the credit card. But that's, <laughs> uh, but that's, that stuff exists. Mm. You know, we, we see a lot of that facial recognition stuff out there. I don't know that Australians are ready for that level of creepiness. That's
0: why I was asking yeah. the question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah. true.
2: We are, we are a lot shyer than some of our American colleagues when it yeah. comes to the creepiness of our technology.
0: Louis, you've got some examples.
2: I do indeed. Um, a couple of examples, one related to a shopping centre that is tracking its guests and customers at which particular part of the shopping centre that they're at and it's offering them discounts where they have to walk the whole length of the shopping centre to actually claim that discount and get like a 10% or 15% off uh, a coffee.
0: So they're getting all of that extra foot traffic Absolutely. across past all of those and stores, yeah. wow.
2: And according to reports, that's added $2 million per year to the shopping centre. So it's a fantastic example of how digital... Uh, technology is actually adding to the bottom line. Yeah. Another one is uh, what's publicly you can easily do it yourself, where you just uh, search. Say you want to buy Domino's pizza. The minute you do that, you'll get a, an ad to buy a Pizza Hut pizza. So we know that there are supermarkets globally that are starting to look at this in terms of tracking people if they're going to a competing supermarket and offering them discounts. So that's another good example of, of just trying to track and keep customer loyalty.
0: Yep, so that's vicinity rather than online tracking as well. Yeah, wow. Incredible. Exactly. Mm. It's getting spooky, isn't it?
2: It is very spooky.
0: So my next question, which we've covered a little bit off uh, already with those examples about the um, initial purchasing, but I just want to explore with you getting that initial purchase and securing loyalty. Mm. We've touched on loyalty a bit already, but talk to us, John, a little bit about your views on that.
1: I think... When you speak to loyalty program managers or or, uh, to retailers, they they will argue that people are becoming more fickle and less brand loyal. Now, I don't really think that's true, but I think what's happening is today's consumer wants people to work harder to maintain that loyalty, whether it be the supermarkets, as Louis outlined, or whether it be whoever you buy your clothes from. Uh, The expectation is that you have to work harder to maintain my loyalty. It's not just shiny light, shiny light, shiny light, Oh, butterfly, shiny light, shiny light, you know. That's not true of uh, the digital native, but their expectation is that it must be in context. So don't offer uh, uh, an incentive to your loyalty program members we're having a 10% sale on all trousers just after I've already bought trousers. That's just going to annoy me. Mm. So be more personal about your loyalty program. Don't do batch and blast be specific, have personalised rules in that say, if you've already bought trousers, offer the 10% in shirts or jackets. So that's what the loyalty programs now have to manage, a bit more information drilling down to more personal things.
0: So that's interesting because I know a lot of the companies I have loyalty programs with aren't that thoughtful. So I will get the you know ten percent off the dress that I've already bought, and I think that's that is a bit annoying and it, it's it not a nice. I mean, thing, I got,
1: yeah. I, the reason for the example is that I got it after I bought trousers, hmm. but equally I got the I got the abandoned cart email after i bought trousers, and you know abandoned cart and then it gave me a discount on the cart that I'd already gone in store and bought. bought yes. mm. So
0: so not and so that actually is my next topic which is around the importance of the client's back end systems to actually support this front end client experience. And mm. it's actually, particularly, I think, having worked in the fashion industry, um, particularly important with clothing and footwear that, in, in my point of view, that sizes are consistent across yeah. the board. You know, So organisations really need to look at their back end processes in how they design and build their product to make it always a good experience and not I'm buying a size 12, but now you're telling me that doesn't fit and I have to buy a 14, which I really won't be happy with, and return the product because I've bought it online. Um, You know, so it's the back-end systems are really, really critical. Um, Louis, do you have any experience or examples there?
2: Yeah, well, I've got, there's probably a lot of bad examples where you, as what you've just Mm. highlighted, Sandy, where you're actually looking to buy a pair of shoes and you've got a particular colour that's on the front page and you click on it and then it says that that uh, particular colour is out of stock. Mm. So again, that's going back to the conversations we're continually having with our clients about understanding and kind of consolidating their their back end systems and knowing where that data is. The data is really important to make sure that that is your that is your liquid goal to ensure that you have one single one single view of every item you've got. And commerce plays a key part here in terms of understanding all of the SKUs. Even if you look at one of our clients who's got a global e commerce. Um, business and they sell to the US, they sell alcohol to the US and there are different alcohol rules in every single US state. So understanding that can only be done through software really to give that end user that, that, uh, that seamless experience.
0: Yeah, good examples. So just changing track a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, John I'd like to explore with you a little bit about our companies and how we've worked together. Sure. Are there some examples of client challenges where we've come together and helped really make a great experience for our clients, customers?
1: We have uh, a number of shared customers, uh, a lot of case studies, probably in uh, in Louis's pocket as well as in mine. Uh, Dow Chemical come to mind, Dyson, Heineken, Volvo. We, we share customers across quite a lot of different verticals, and we've solved different challenges at each of those. Would you concur?
2: Absolutely. Without a doubt, across the verticals, and it's not just retail. We're looking at the energy sector now, for example. And an interesting point that uh, Cycle shared with me is that if you're an energy client, which we all are, the minute you, did you call a call centre, that costs that energy company $18 per, per call. There's an example by automating that process, putting an e-commerce solution in there where they're going to be saving $18 per call. Hmm. And you just look at them, there are probably millions of calls
1: made every single month to these call centres. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, if you look, you you don't naturally think of uh, vacuum cleaners or Dyson or Volvo uh, as a commerce play, But in reality, they are, because commerce isn't necessarily just transactional. It's it's, uh, down to the servicing costs. So uh, we've got a Dyson uh, at home. I thought I'd broken it. Uh, The boss a.k.a. my wife, she got onto the Dyson site and discovered some troubleshooting without having to ring them for the $18 call and she was able to diagnose that her husband's Mm. not that smart and she fixed it. Now, that that sort of saves them on on that that digital experience, saved them cost and uh, saved me a certain level of embarrassment. But I, I I think we need to remember the digital touch points go across the board of the entire customer journey. Acquisition loyalty, total lifetime value, post-sale experience, post-purchase experience, and that's how you get user-generated reviews and things. You've got to delight at all of those touch points.
0: Thank you. So just let's look to the future for a moment. Um, how do we think things like AR and VR, you know, virtual reality, how do you think they will play with commerce in the future?
1: Well, let's let's reference your fashion background then, shall we? augmented reality so you go into a uh, change room with uh, a few uh, outfits you want to try on you try one on there are now mirrors uh, virtual uh, so augmented reality mirrors that'll transpose you you take a photo of your first outfit you put the next one on you can compare them you can contrast go into a l'oreal salon in uh, the u.s You can stand in front of a magic mirror and digitally apply the various colours and makeups to your reflected image before you actually physically do it. So there are some some leaders who are doing that. Virtual reality, uh, Lowe's in the US have a hologram room where you can walk into a room, which is essentially just a box with the, the equipment on, and design and place your kitchen cabinets into place to see how it feels and looks. So that stuff is, is sort of out there in individual examples. Will it make it into the mainstream? It probably depends on the cost per magic mirror, per apparatus before you can roll it out. If you've got 100 stores and it's going to cost you $10,000 per store, that's a big investment, isn't it? Mm. Yes. So I think that stuff's coming, but it's, it's to do with the cost per installation.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think at the moment, the technology is emerging. We still probably get to see any concrete examples where we can see it from a VR perspective. Mm. I would see maybe from an AI perspective, we're, kind of, we're seeing it with Google Home and Alexa at home mm. where you can create a, ask Alexa to build up a shopping list for you, a grocery list, and then towards the end of the week, say Alexa, go and purchase my groceries. And it magically appears at your door a few hours later. So there's things like that I think that are more kind of tangible now. But definitely the augmented reality and virtual reality, I think that's coming, but we still don't know exactly what that means from a commerce perspective.
0: So when all of that becomes commoditized, we're likely to see a bit more of it then?
1: Yeah, I think that's how it'll be. Yeah. I think that's, it's hard to predict the future. There's whole companies that do futurists, but you can see some of it emerging.
0: If you were to give your customers one piece of advice to prepare for the future of e-commerce or commerce, what would it be? John, let's go first.
1: From our perspective, it's the coming wave of voice technology, uh, whether that's voice searching or whether that's understanding that you need to have your data in such a place that, that you are ready to enable that. It's a bit like We knew mobile was coming, voice is coming, and you only have to go and look at Google's latest release where the Google Assistant rings uh, a restaurant and gets a booking or rings a hairdresser. Voice is going to be incredibly important. And uh, Louie's earlier example about uh, Amazon Alexa or Google Home, that's voice searching. In order to get that to work for a retailer, they must prepare now uh, and prepare their data in such a way that those phrases are recognised.
0: Mm. Yeah, thank you. And Louis, what about you?
2: And that is extension to what John was just saying. Um, from a user experience perspective, it's all about the data. I think we talk to clients all the time and we always ask them, how well do you really know your customers? And a lot of them are just second guessing. Whereas the data is there, yes, it's in disparate systems. So the consolidation of those systems, the consolidation of data is going to give them straight away today, a much better view of what their real customers are today and what their habits are and what their future habits are going to be. And that is the baseline that can be started today. And then from that, you can build a whole personalization strategy and a whole future strategy around commerce and personalization, and obviously adding lots of dollars to their bottom line.
0: Thanks, Louis. So my real big takeout from today is the value of data in all of this equation, which happens to be something I'm pretty passionate about right. anyway. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Guys, thank you so much for such an interesting conversation. Thanks for having um, us. It's thank been you. a pleasure having you it's on board, great. Louis and John. Thank you.
1: Cheers. Cheers.
0: Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to hosting the next podcast on intelligent automation. For more details, please visit avanard.com/podcast.